0: We are in our kind of a, a mini series entitled "Family Matters." Uh, we'll be entering into another series in just a couple weeks called "The Five Solas," uh, and then after that, we'll be spinning a series called "The Summer of This in the Spirit," as we're exploring the Holy Spirit and what God's role and purpose for Him is in our lives. But today, we're last week we actually talked about um, the responsibility of husbands and what a husband's responsibility is to his wife. And we said, "Husbands, love your wives." Uh, the scripture makes that very, very clear. And today we're entering into a topic that most peop- for most people, it's like drinking orange, orange juice after you brush your teeth. Uh, it's talking about the roles of men and women, and especially how wives are to respect their husbands. And undoubtedly, there's a lot of controversy over this. Uh, there was controversy actually during Paul's day, and there's controversy about the topic now. And I, and I think because the husband and wife relationship is really the matrix for our sanctification. It's the closest relationship that we have to another person on this earth that uh, helps us to show our love for God and also be sharpened for God. And, And statistics, if statistics are right, then... Every one of us in this room, it will be impacted by marriage in some way. Uh, The majority will marry, although some choose to remain single. Some are happily so and and enjoy that. There are others that are unhappily single, um, meaning that they've not had the right person or perhaps they've passed through a divorce or maybe they've been uh, widowed. And I understand that as we talk about the husband and wife relationship, that not everyone is in a marriage situation number one, and number two, not as everyone has had a great marriage experience. We recognize that right off the bat, but this teaching that we're looking at today is for our benefit, and because each one of us, in some way, shape, or form, will be impacted by marriage, in that we're either married, going to be married, uh, or we were married, or we're influencing other people that are married, it behooves us to really look and understand what God's intent is for what marriage is? Because really, uh, one of the biggest jokes is is that husbands and wives are always arguing with one another, and we want to make sure that we make the relationship, or the husband wife relationship, work really well. In fact, Chuck Swindoll, um, pastor, told the story about at his church. He he was talking about that if you love uh, good happy endings, then you'll love Christianity. Because Christianity ends with harmony, victory, justice, everything, everything wrong being made right. And then he said, he put a kind of a practical edge to it when he was talking to his church. And he said, and so men, you will no longer have any arguments with your wives. Four men said, amen. This is a church of almost a thousand people, if not more. And then he put another little end on it. And he goes, and wives, you will no longer have any arguments with your husbands. Hundreds of women went, amen, at the same time. Because there are, there are a lot of, there's going to be a lot of conflicts. In marriage relationship. you're going to have a lot of conflict with one another. And, it, and a lot of it has to do with our uh, wrong understanding of what our roles are as husbands and wives. And so we need to understand what God says about this because our culture is extremely confused at what makes even man a man and a woman a woman. The fact that we're having these debates and we're seeing it played out in our schools and in our workplaces over who uses what bathroom shows the type of muck we are in right now as a culture. Therefore, our culture in many ways has forfeited any type of right of understanding what the role of a husband or a role of a wife should be because there is complete confusion about marriage itself and what marriage is and what benefit it, it, it has for us and what was God's purpose in creating it. That's why we have to go back to what is timeless because the Word of God acts as a fresh breeze to remove the fog of our culture so that we might be able to see and behave clearly as we receive what God has for us. So today, uh, though the immediate context has a great um, is highlighting wives, I hope that whether you're young or old, male or female, single or married, that we can see God's instructions through Paul, by the Holy Spirit are for our mutual benefit. So I'd like to pause for a moment before we go any further and ask God by His Holy Spirit to speak to us today. And let's take a moment to open our hearts and our minds to ask God to show us by His Spirit what He has for us that we might, we might reflect His glory and increase in joy. So let's take a moment to pray. Oh Lord, our God, we come into Your presence by the mighty name, blood, and finished work of Jesus. We recognize how frail our understanding is of things how convoluted and how confused our culture is. And Lord, we've even seen some Christians have a very difficult or misunderstanding of what your word says. Lord, we know that we cannot understand apart from your spirit guiding us. So we ask him to be here now to bring forth the word of truth onto our hearts with great clarity and conviction that we might apply them that we might experience all the benefits and blessings that you have laid out within your word. Because Lord, you have created us and you have made us for yourself. And help us to show how that we as your image bearers can live out our masculinity and femininity uh, as husbands and wives. Lord, show us who we are, but moreover, show us who you are and how what we might reflect back to you what you mean to us. So Lord, speak to us. We beg you in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're starting off in the book of Ephesians, chapter five, and Paul starts off right in the ba- right off the bat with the kind of the controversial verse. He says, "Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord." Now, this this verse was controversial then, and it's controversial now, but for opposing reasons. It was controversial then because of how women were viewed in ancient Jewish society and especially within Greek and Roman society. Women were considered to be property. They had no legal rights. They couldn't testify in a court of law. Um, And they, matter of fact, some Jewish men, especially some rabbis, would stand up and they would pray each morning by thanking God that they weren't born a, a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This is how women were viewed in very much the ancient world. So for Paul to come along and speak and address women is already countercultural. Because in many places, they thought women didn't even think, didn't have the ability to think, didn't have the ability to understand. Women were to, in essence, stay in their place. And especially in Greek and Roman society, a woman was to stay in the home, raise the man's legitimate children while he went off and had everything he wanted on the side. She was just kind of to stay there, Mind her business and not do anything else. So the understanding of women in the ancient world was very low. But when we see Christianity come along, we see Christ elevate women to a place that was very controversial in the ancient world. Because he sees men and women as image bearers of God. He validates women. We see this actually brought out in several different ways throughout the New Testament, especially within the Gospels. When Jesus had, um, and we see he had many traveling companions, he had the 12 apostles, he had 70 disciples, but even with that and traveling along were several different women that were ministering to the apostles. Uh, They were helping supply them financially. There was all of this work that many women were were doing to help expand the kingdom of God. And we see a great emphasis even in the the book of Matthew chapter 1 where the genealogy of Jesus is mentioned. There are women that are mentioned in the genealogy which normally didn't often count to many Jewish men. And he highlights these women to show their validity, their value uh, in the kingdom of God. And probably one of the greatest honors is that once Jesus rose from the dead, the very first eyewitnesses were women. And this is at a time when a woman's public testimony wasn't allowed in court. So if you were trying to create a religion out of nothing and trying to get it to be valued, you would not do this. But Which, in my mind, shows the truth or the veracity of God's word. And the gospel story. And we see Christ elevating women and giving honor to women. So for Paul, addressing women would have been controversial in the ancient world. Now it's controversial in our era too, but on the opposite uh, pole. Because now with the rise of feministic thought that we see, which is advocating inequality of the genders, which is true, but now the lines have become blurred so much that there is almost a removal of distinction between men and women. And it's the rise in what some have called the asexual world. Where you're seeing different models, these trans models, which can't be determined whether they're men or women. We see arguments on whether or not uh, who can use what bathroom, depending on what gender they identify with they say don't you can't say that my genitals determine my gender why can't i because that's what has been done since the very beginning of time god made them male and female now the fall affects people differently and this gender dysphoria that we see within our culture today is an aspect of the fall of a man where the bible acts as a corrective to whatever we see that's going on within society Because God's truth as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of God is timeless. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So we have to go back to the revelation or the very word of God to understand our culture. And not let our culture indict the scripture, but let the scripture indict our culture. Which it does. It shows us the truth of who God is, but also the truth of who we are. shows us that we are sinners and that our understanding of even the basic elements of our humanity as God's image bearers is affected in our masculinity and in our femininity. And that translates into the greater marriage roles that we have within our lives. And Paul writes to correct this. And he wants us to get an understanding or to examine God's ordained arrangement for husbands and wives. So if we're to understand this instruction, we need to understand why God arranged this. Why did God make men and women? Why did God arrange marriage the way that he did? Why are husbands given this role? And why are wives given this role? Isn't that sexist? Isn't that uh, archaic? Isn't that leftovers of a bygone era? That's what we hear. And we hear people say that it is based upon culture. But once we go to the Word of God and though we see culture affecting our Christian faith, culture does not determine this here. So we have to understand that. This does not come from culture. Our cultures, we all are a product of our cultures. We have people from different cultures. We have people from Cuba, from India, from Puerto Rico, uh, from Burma, from Bangladesh. We have folks from all different lands, uh, I mean, for, throughout Africa, throughout Asia, and even different parts of the United States. California, New York, the deep south, Texas. We have people coming from all over, and they, all of our cultures help uh, us determine what is valuable, what is good, how we live, how we move. And we learn that from the time that we're young. And we have to understand that the Bible does speak about culture. And there are elements of culture within it, but not in this. Not in the roles of husbands and wives. That, I mean, that's not what transcends. So we have to try to strip it as best as we can down to the truth of who God is. Because what the reality is, is if we don't look at what the Word of God says, culture will determine what we value rather than letting what Scripture and what God says determine value. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, this, just this past week, my daughter and I were talking about a book that she had to read for her freshman uh, year class, and it was Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a g- classic piece of American literature. Um, And as we were talking about it, she was trying to understand. She goes, I mean, it's a good book, but I I don't understand why everybody gets in such a big deal, makes a big deal of this book. And I said, well, you don't understand what was going on in the culture at the time, the embedded racism, the prejudice that what people were going through. And, And what Harper Lee did was basically put a mirror up to the culture to show how ugly it had become in its hate. And so we have to go back. In order to understand our own time, we need to be able to read and look at people from other times. C.S. Lewis called us being guilty of what he called chronological snobbery. And he met was, as we think that we're just in our own era, in our own time, and we have to understand to read and look outside of our own culture because oftentimes what we think is a big deal in our culture, other cultures say no or times say no. And they act as a corrective to us because we get blind spots on in how we think things are supposed to be. When we read outside of our own personal experience, that acts as a corrective. And no better corrective is the scripture itself. And here we see that it's not based on culture, but creation. Now, culture does affect us greatly, but in this case, it's not the culture that was the main influencer of the husband and wife relationship, but it comes from creation itself. When it says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is himself its Savior. What is this understanding of head? Where does that come from? In order to understand this, I think we need to examine a few other New Testament passages, such as First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. Paul's writing to young Timothy, and he says this, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. He's not saying that you shouldn't dress badly. He's just saying, focus on the inner person. That's a greater influence than wanting to be beautiful. Women have a natural desire to want to be beautiful. That's a good thing. I want to affirm that. When my, when my children or my daughters say, do I look beautiful? I said, yes, you look beautiful. But make sure your beauty points other people to Jesus. Every woman has a desire to want to be beautiful. That's not a bad thing. But here, Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you know what? Your time Actually, you should be teaching this, is that not to spend so much time on your outward beauty, but on the heart of trying to be the woman God wants you to be. Proper for women who profess godliness with good works, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first. This is the the issue here. Then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. For the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there's a tremendous amount of information in this passage that we will not have time to explain, but we can see that there is a creative order upon which this understanding of submission is built. Man was created first, and then woman was created second. This doesn't mean that a woman is less or inferior. The order is cited not because of worth, but because of responsibility. Here's what I mean. Uh, I was picking up my my oldest daughter from school the other day, and uh, she wanted to do something with her friends. Uh, which is pretty normal, it was a last minute thing, but we had already planned that she would watch the kids while I had a, a ministry obligation I had to fulfill, my wife had a, a business thing she had to fulfill. And uh, uh, my daughter and I were going back and forth, and I said, Honey, I understand, I understand you want to do this, and I want you to have fun, but you have a responsibility because you are the oldest child. As old as the firstborn, you have a greater responsibility in the house. And, and it's just the way that it is. It, I mean, it's, do I do I love her more than I love the other three? She would say yes, but the other ones would say no. I love all my kids equally, but each one has a greater responsibility depending on you know, the, in many ways, the age. And so here, the responsibility has been placed on Adam. He has the responsibility to lead his family. So it's not about worth as they're saying that he is the one here that is responsible. Now, this doesn't mean a woman's not a responsible agent. She is. But in the Genesis narrative, which this is citing about the woman being deceived, the issue is about Adam abdicating his role of responsibility. For example, when when Adam and Eve were tempted, or when Eve was tempted, where was Adam? Where was he? The scripture says he was there with her. See, he was letting her. He knew who the enemy was, and he chose to not to do anything about it. He was failing in his role to lead, provide, and protect his family. He had abdicated his role and his responsibility. But we see here that God is still placing that upon men to do this, to be the leaders that God wants them to be. And we see that this is drawn out in several New Testament passages Matter of fact, universally throughout the New Testament, we see uh, the command to submit to the husband using the same verbiage. In Ephesians 5.22, uh, Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3.1, and Titus 2.4. Now look low at what Paul says in verse 23. Because though it's rooted in creation, there's something else at play. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Paul gives an analogy to show the relationship between a husband and wife. He compares the husband and wife relationship to Christ and his church. The church is not an authority over Christ, but Christ is the authority over the church. This is what he is basing the submission on, the example of the church. It's the next point that you can write down within your notes. The church submits to Christ as the wife is to submit to her husband, but here is the kicker. Men, you have to love Christ. Love your wife and lead her like Christ leads the church. He nourished and cherished his church because the members are the members of his own body. In other words, if the husband is the head of this one flesh relationship, which is a new relationship, a new connection that is made between husband and wife, and 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 he is now the head of this body, it's considered his body. They are one flesh, and he's the head of it then he is responsible as the source of guidance, food, and alertness. Then the natural conclusion is that the head, the husband, has the primary responsibility for leadership, provision, and protection. So though this message is though aimed at ladies, men, you have a huge responsibility to lead. Now let's get back to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now this is a fascinating verse here. Uh, because the word submit actually doesn't occur in verse 22 in Greek. It's borrowed from verse 21. It's borrowed from verse 21. Um, but it says, submit to one another, which says, verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what does that mean? It means that the submission referred to here is done out of reverence for Jesus, but it is seen in our relationship with our husband and our wives. The ESV, English Standard Version, doesn't express this. I actually like how the New Living Translation puts this. It says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives submit to your husbands in everything and then it goes on in the same way husbands are to love their wives but right now we're just going to highlight verse 21 through 24 now we have to explore this admonition why did god put this within the scripture we have to explore this admonition that god has laid out for us that's the next point that i want you to write down is we have to be exploring god's admonition for us why is paul calling for submission and what is submission by the way what is submission The Greek word for submit um, actually means to subject oneself, to obey, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice, absolutely. Now, some of you are saying, I cannot do this. You have no idea what my husband's like. Um, And I I do lament that. And I want to explain, elaborate what this submission means. Okay? Because I recognize that. And this in no way, by the way, advocates abuse of any sort, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But what does it mean? Now, what it really means is, in the context here, is we, we have to understand not just the context here, but other verses that employ this word, because God calls us all to submit. Every single being in the universe submits. We read this. Matter of fact, we read that um, in Scripture, we, have, we are to submit to authorities. Angels are submitted to God. Sur- spirits are, su- are um, submit to Jesus. Jesus submits to his mother. We're to submit to our parents and to leaders in government and leaders in the church. These are, we all are practicing submission. But here, we're, this, it's the women, the wives, that are called to submit to the authority in their life. It's a submission to authority, and her husband is considered an authority. Now, what does that mean, though? Submitting to the authority. This is where we go back to the garden. Adam was the authority in that he bore the responsibility, and he abdicated that. So to recognize that he has a responsibility to be leading you, and you're submitting and recognizing his position that God has placed him in to be the spiritual leader. And it refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of will. Rather, it is her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership because Christ is the absolute authority, not her husband. She should never follow her husband into sin. Never. Without exception. Because I've heard some say, oh, she's to submit, she's to do this. If you are being uh, trying to lead into sin, there is no submission that's required because God is the ultimate authority and we're to obey God rather than men. God is the ultimate authority. So God does not will you to sin. And remember, this does not mean that the wife is less than the husband. A woman was not made out of a man's head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved, which the New Testament brings out in a greater way and shows the that both men and women are image bearers of God. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor Slave nor free, nor male nor female. Meaning that we are ontologically, in our essence, equal in Jesus. But in our function, we have different roles as men and women. In family, in the home, and in the church. Uh, and let me say, for the, a woman to be submissive or to do this type of submission takes an amazingly great strength. Uh, there's a reason why women give birth and men don't. Because if men had to give birth, no babies would ever be born. Men, we're not that type of, we're not that that strength. Women have an inner strength. I mean, men do too. There's a different type of strength. Each one has a different type of strength. But to do this submission takes strength. Um, Because submission is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. It takes strength to put oneself under the authority of another, especially if that person does not have your best interest at heart. For example, this means unbelievers, by the way. Ladies, even if your husband is an unbeliever, you are to submit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 2 puts it this way. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. It takes an incredible strength to submit to someone who's a jerk. Seriously. And let me give you an illustration from another place. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the movie Forty Two about Jackie Robinson? Great movie, great, great movie. Okay, uh, in the movie, Branch Rickey, who was the general manager of the Do- Dodgers, wanted to break the color barrier in baseball, and there were some amazing uh, players at the time in the Negro Leagues. And he could pick I um, mean, some of these, like Josh Gibson, there were some Satchel Paige. He had some amazing baseball players to choose from. But he knew that this person was going to have to be special because they were going to have to endure such hostility from other people. And so one of the, the most amazing interchanges in the movie is when Branch Ricky tells him what he's going to go through. And Robinson gets offended by this and he responds, You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? And that's where Branch Rickey responds. He says, no, no, no. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. People are gonna like, aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse, and they're only going to hear your curse. If you follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say, that Negro lost his temper, or that Negro does not belong. Your enemy will, will be out in force, and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting, running, fielding, only that. And we win if the world is convinced of two things, that you're a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. And like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? That's the submission that we're talking about here. You have to have an incredible strength to be able to endure that, to to say I'm willingly going to put myself here, A, a strength of character, and you know what you're submitting to. You know it, and that's what is more even incredible about it, to realize what you're submitting to. It takes incredible strength for a woman to do that. And this type of submission takes great strength and a greater understanding of our Savior. I love how Branch Ricky leaves that off. He says, like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? See, Jesus submitted to his Father's will even when it meant his own death. And he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cried out and he said, not my will, but thy will be done. I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to willingly put myself here to place myself under your will, knowing that there's something greater that you're going to accomplish that I may not be able to completely see or understand at this moment. So there's an understanding of the Savior. Jesus submitted to his Father's will. Jackie Robinson submitted so that greater things could happen. And you are to submit so that a greater good may be accomplished. This takes great strength and a great deal of faith. God calls us to die, and that is part of what submission is. Dying to self. But ladies, how's this to be done? It requires wives to make sure that they are embracing the proper attitude. Attitude is everything. Is, is this submission to be done in defiance? Or is it more of entrusting oneself to God? Or perhaps entrusting your husband to God? Jesus submitted to the Father when he was in the garden, when he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Marriage is not so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. So what is submission? How do we do this? How do we have this attitude? I like how Tony Evans put it. He said this, Submission is knowing how to duck so God can hit your husband. <laughs> it's knowing how to duck so God can hit your husband. <laughs> Meaning that God, you bear that responsibility. You bear that responsibility. And it's to, to put him in its acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and his proper order. In order for God is, is huge. That's why we get into 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, and we can talk about head coverings a different time, where it says that a woman would have a symbol of authority on her head for the angels to understand authority and how the creative order is, by the way, and how, what that entails and how that applies out. So we have to make sure that we are embracing, embracing the pop, proper attitude. Now, I want us to say, say really quick here this. Submission is not to be used as an excuse for abuse. Ever. Ever. There are some that have advocated that, and that is horrendous. That is awful. That is a perversion of the gospel. You know why? Because Jesus never hit his bride. Never. He never hit his church. He loved his church and he gave himself up for her. And this submission is not to be demanded, it is given. It's interesting that in Greek, this verb that's there for submission has this basic meaning to subject or subordinate. But here's, here, as Paul is using the middle voice, which is focusing on what one does to oneself, meaning that the woman willingly gives this submission. It's not demanded. You are to submit to me. No, 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 no. It is a willing gift. And if you're demanding submission, then you have a, you have a bigger problem because you don't understand necessarily what it is. So this must be done willingly. One submits oneself to others. This is a submission in the sense of voluntary yielding in love. And this voluntary yielding to others is a characteristic of the Christian community and is urged elsewhere in the New Testament. It's to be done willingly, and it's to be done wholly. Wholly. W H O L L Y. And let me explain this, and i got another part to it to, uh, as an addendum to help explain what that means. Paul concludes this section to wives in verses 23 through 24 by indicating that wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In Ponti is what it is in Greek. The phrase is all-encompassing. Submission must encompass all aspects of life. This removes the misunderstanding that some may have had and others still may have that Paul is simply speaking about submission in sex or some other narrow realm. Since by God's decree, marriage partners are one flesh, God warns them to function under one head, not two autonomous individuals living together. Now, it's to be done wholly, but it's also to be done wisely. Wisely. And here's what I mean by that. Again, a woman is not called to submit or surrender if it's to be led into sin. Now, here I'm going to put a little responsibility on the men for what this means. Uh, Kathy Keller, who is the wife of Timothy Keller, they wrote a book together called The Meaning of Marriage, probably one of the best books on marriage I've ever read in my entire life. I would heavily encourage it. They really look at the practical implications, but also the theological underpinnings and how that all works together. But she put it this way. Let me say this. The husband's authority, like the son's over us, is never used to please himself, but only to serve the interests of his wife. Let me repeat that just in case you missed it. The husband's authority, like the sons over us, meaning God the sons over us, is never used to please himself, but only to serve the interests of his wife. Headship does not mean a husband simply makes all the decisions, nor does it mean that he gets his way in every disagreement. Why? Because Jesus never did anything to please himself, Romans fifteen two through 3 A servant leader must sacrifice his wants and needs to please and build up his partner. Also, a wife is ne- never merely to be compliant, but is to use her resources to empower, to complement each other. Um, to complement each other means husband and wife need to hear each other out and make their arguments. Completion is hard and is hard work and involves loving contention with affection until you sharpen, enrich, and enhance each other. She must bring every gift and resource that she has to the discussion, and he must, as any wise manager, know when to allow her experiences to trump his own less well-informed opinion. Which means that you listen to one another. You listen to one another. When I hear guys that say, did you talk to your wife? No, I didn't. I just made the decision. You're an idiot. You need to talk. You need to be able to talk and communicate with one another. Because she might have wisdom that you do not. My wife wife has wisdom that I do not. She has insights that I do not. She sees into other people in situations intuitively as a woman that I miss. That if I negated that or what she was feeling or what was going on around it. I mean, there are certain times I'm kind of more of a, a, just put blinders on and I'm focused. And my wife is thinking of the greater aspect of family at times. And there's other times that it's me that's doing that. And we balance one another. We sharpen one another. That's what's going on right here is to be speaking and and growing together. And a wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. No human being should give any other human being unconditional obedience. In other words, a wife should not obey or aid a husband in doing things that God forbids, such as selling drugs or physically abusing her. If, for example, he beats her, the strong help that a wife should exercise is to love and forgive him in her heart, but have him arrested seriously. I'm dead serious. Why? Because it's for the benefit of the greater good. You should have him arrested if he's beating your family. He needs to understand there's a consequence to his action, and you need to make sure you keep those in the family safe. It is never kind or loving to anyone to make it easy for him or her to do wrong. Assuming the role of headship is only done for purposes of ministering to your wife and family. Some say, in the biblical view, both husband and wife are to minister to each other unselfishly. So then what's the difference? It is clear that the son obeys the head, the father, and that we obey our head, the Christ. But how does this authority work out in the context of mutually serving persons equal in dignity and being? The answer is that a head can only overrule his spouse if he is sure that her choice would be destructive to her or to the family. He does not use his headship selfishly to get his own way about the color of the car they buy or who gets to hold the remote control. And whether he has a night out with the boys or to stay home, uh, or stays home to help with the kids when his wife asks him. Submission is not easy. But we have to understand there is a creative order in why God established this principle in practice. It's not just for our own mutual benefit, but it's so that we, in our marriages, if we are married, and if you're not married, then you still need to hear this teaching so that you can relate this to other people. Because if you haven't looked around lately, our marriage and understanding of a marriage and our culture is a complete mess. And often that way in many churches. And we have to understand what God intends by this because it's for our benefit and our blessing. When we see that there's an order that we seek to emulate, then God's glory radiates from our marriages and unbelievers see who Jesus is in us and then are drawn accordingly to it. We had a woman come to us uh, a few years ago and uh, she was talking to us and she said, I've been watching your family for the few years and how you guys interact with one another. I want to know how that works because my husband and I don't operate like that. And there's something to you that I don't understand, but I want to know more about. And by God's grace, she's been in our small group, and she's been hearing this, and it's changed her whole perspective in her married life. Because we're seeing how this works out. God's truth will remain true. It's for our benefit and for our blessing. When it usually goes wrong, it's not because God was wrong. It's because we were wrong in how we applied or understood it, or how we worked it out. Submission is not easy, but it's what God calls for. He does this so that the world can see that there is order, that there is a willingness to submit and surrender to God in our rebellion and our humanity. And here this worked out in our marriages where we submit to one another and we show Christ and that people can see that God is orderly and that he is the savior of the world. Submission is not just for our benefit so that the world might gain a greater picture of who Jesus is and how others might be saved and how we can increase in joy let's pray. Father, this is a hard teaching. It's a hard one to understand every implication and how it permeates every fabric and thread of our lives. Lord, I pray for our men that they might be true servant leaders, putting the needs of their families ahead of their own, sacrificing themselves as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. Lord, though our cultures have affected each one of us, though many of us have have simply assumed the roles that we often saw modeled in front of us for good or for ill, I pray, Lord, that your word might act as a corrective to us, that we might make the the necessary changes in our lives, in our marriages as husbands and wives to fulfill these roles and responsibilities that you have given us. Of one sacrificing themselves willingly, of the other one surrendering uh, for the good of, The greater marriage. And Lord, I pray through all of this that Christ might be seen. Lord, because we do want the whole world to see and know who Jesus is. We want it to be worked out in every thread and fabric of our being. Lord, let every aspect of our humanity and as in our dignity as God's co-image bearers and as co-heirs of salvation be equal in our proclamation of the truth that you are the risen Christ, the Savior of the world, and that you forgive sins and that you give your spirit so that we might live this life that you have intended for us. Forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we falter. Forgive us when we turn away from the truth of who you are. But Lord, grant us a spirit of repentance that we might turn back and receive all for all what we have in Christ for the glory of your name and for our good and benefit. We ask you to bless us and grow us in our marriages and in our sanctification. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.